John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Would you please stand together out of reverence for God's holy word. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to destroy him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For as the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will, show, will he show them, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In the words of uh, Walter Chalmers Smith, who wrote the hymn we sang first up this morning, Immortal Invisible, read, To all life thou givest, to both great and small, in all life thou livest, true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree, and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. We serve the immortal God. The immortal God who gives life to his children. He gives spiritual life to his children. But even at this very moment, he gives life to everything that lives and breathes and moves on this planet. From the smallest worm to a soaring eagle, every single human being on this planet receives life from God. But here's the amazing part. Even those who reject him, even those who claim no belief in him, even to them he is giving life at this very moment. 
So this morning we're going to see how both the Father and the Son give life. But we're also going to see how both the Father and the Son judge. How they both judge with eternal judgment. And that justice will be coming for those who deny the Lord by their their life and by their words. And so all things being equal, the Father and the Son are equal. And we're going to see that this morning as we continue in our examination of John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. And we're going to be talking here about the doctrine of the Trinity, or more specifically, the the deity of the Son. And if you remember, I explained that the doctrine of the the Trinity, that that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one God in three persons, and that this is one of the most difficult and controversial doctrines in the history of the church. I explained last week how in attempting to explain the doctrine and explain the nature of the Father and the Son, that many have often resorted to explanations and illustrations that slide into heresy. And we saw how the Nicene Council was convened in order to settle the matter, to to explain as best as is humanly possible the nature of of the Son, and the, the, the debate centered around homoousios and homoousios. If you remember, homoousios is our God the Father and God the Son of similar essence, or homoousios, are they of the same essence? And I, I demonstrated from this passage how because what the Father and the Son do are the same, they are actually of the same essence. They share a divine nature. And to say any less than that is heresy. So this subject is one in which has caused a lot of controversy, but it is also a subject in which when we cast ourselves upon the testimony of God's holy word, we are able to to recalibrate our human thinking so that we can line up with who God really is. Because in order to understand who God really is, you cannot rely on human thinking. You have to rely on God's holy word and the power of his Holy Spirit. So God the Father and God the Son are of one essence. They are completely and totally and utterly one. And the Son proves this by doing the same things as the Father. The Pharisees knew it, and they wanted to kill Jesus for making himself equal with God. If you remember in in verse 17, they said that, that he was breaking the Sabbath. Now, he was breaking, as we saw, not actually breaking the Sabbath, but breaking their pharisaical man-made traditions. But he was calling himself equal with the Father. And he was doing that again and again and again in this passage. 
Now, of course, the Father and the Son do have different roles. We talked about the, the ontological trinity and the economic trinity in their essence, in who they are. They are equal. They are the same. But in the way that they relate within the trinity and the way they relate to us, they have different roles, but they have ultimately the same will and they ultimately have the same purpose. They have ultimately the same power and they have ultimately the same judgment. And this is what we're going to see in our passage this morning. Jesus said in verses 19 and 20, responding to the Pharisees and their sinful response, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Remember that what Jesus is saying here is immeasurably more than like Father, like Son, because of the unique relationship between the Father and the Son because of the unsurpassed, eternal, perfect love that the Father has for the Son. He is showing the Son all that He does. And Jesus shows us all that the Father does. Jesus is revealing the Father to us. As D.A. Carson explains, the Son, by his obedience to the Father, is acting in such a way that he is revealing the Father, doing the Father's deeds, performing the Father's will. The Son is exegeting or narrating the Father. So when Jesus Christ walked on the earth, he was the perfect reflection of the Father. And he was reflecting the Father to us so that we might be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Last week we talked about the things that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, how he was showing acts of mercy on the Sabbath, just like the Father. We saw how the, the Son was, is, and is upholding the universe by his providential care, just as the Father. But we're now going to see today that Jesus did even greater things than those. This is even greater than healing a man who has been crippled for 38 years. This is greater even than upholding the universe by the word of his power. The Father and the Son are both doing this greater thing. The Father and the Son have the same authority. They both have authority over life, over physical life, and spiritual life. And they also have authority to judge. We're going to see this from verses 21 and 22 and 24 to 29. This points to the fact that the Father and the Son deserve the same honor. They both deserve our worship. In verse 21, Jesus tells the Pharisees, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Bible shows that the authority to raise the dead and give life belongs to God and to God alone. Deuteronomy 32:39 declares, "See now that I even I am he and there is no god beside me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. And in 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And Psalm 68.20, our God is a God of salvation. And to the God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. God has authority to raise the dead and give life. Jesus has authority to raise the dead and give life. Therefore, Jesus is God. This is yet another direct claim from Jesus to be deity. There is no way that you can read this passage and draw any other conclusion without denying what Jesus said. He was declaring himself to be God. Now, Jesus didn't just claim to have authority to raise the dead. He demonstrated his authority by doing it again and again and again. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, Jesus resurrected a widow's son. He went to, to a town called Nain, and there he encountered a funeral procession. Now, in those days, in a funeral procession, the, the person wouldn't be in a, in a coffin. They would just be laid on a plank. And the whole town would have gathered with this woman and would have been weeping and wailing as they would have carried this, her, her son's lifeless body outside the city gates to be buried outside the city. Now, this widow... Remember we talked about the situation for, for Naomi, that the state of a widow in that, in that time, in the, in the biblical times, was far, far, far more difficult than the situation that, they, that, that we have today. Not only would they have the grief to deal with, which is bad enough, but they would have been destitute. Without a son to care for her, her situation was bleak. So in a demonstration of Jesus' divine authority and his divine mercy, he approaches the woman and says to her, do not weep. Then he touched the funeral buyer and said to, the, said to the man, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man began to, began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, interestingly, this is the same way that it's, it's described in 1 Kings 17.23 when Elijah raises the widow's son. He is said to give the, the, the young man to his mother. The people who saw this were gripped with fear. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen amongst us. God has visited his people. And so the fame of Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Also in Mark 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had just healed a demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, and then amazingly, the people were, were afraid and actually wanted Jesus to leave. Now, we, we, we don't, to our knowledge anyway, encounter demon possession very much in our culture. I wonder, though, if, if when all is revealed at the end, if, if we will see that a lot of the problems that, that we have experienced, a lot of the horrific crimes and things that have been perpetrated have been perpetrated by those who are demon-possessed. Some of the vile things that we see. So it's amazing that somebody would, 
would cast out a demon and then the people would actually want him to leave. But this is what happened. So Jesus then crosses the Sea of Galilee when Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, approaches him and begs him to come and to heal his daughter who was dying. And of course we saw how how a couple of weeks ago we saw how Jesus had raised the official son, the, the official from Herod's court who, who was dying, how Jesus had commanded, even though he didn't have to physically be there, he commanded that the boy would be healed and he was healed. So this, this, in this, this was the same region. Jesus' reputation would have preceded him. Jairus knew what Jesus was capable of, so he begged Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. So Jesus told him, do not fear, only believe. Now on the way there, they encountered the woman who had had the issue of blood, and, and Jesus was, was not sidetracked. This was was part of his plan. That too was a divine appointment. But when Jesus approached Jairus' house, he took with him only Peter and James and John and went into the house. And there they encountered a huge commotion. You see, at that time, there were people who were, were paid mourners. They would actually be paid to go and to, to weep and to wail when somebody had passed away. In order to, I guess, as, as MacArthur says, to prime the pump of grieving. But Jesus says to them, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. How did they respond? They mocked him. They mocked him. But Jesus simply said to her, Child, arise. And then she immediately got up and began walking. Can I just think about this for a second? Put yourself in Jairus' position. Your daughter, your precious only daughter, has just died. There's a pastor from a, a church in Southern California that, that Jane has visited. His, his daughter, eight-year-old daughter, just died of cancer yesterday. Think about it. Think about how you would feel. And then if somebody were to come, if God himself were to come and raise up your precious daughter, would this not be somebody who is worthy of our worship? But perhaps the most famous time that Jesus re resurrected somebody from the dead was Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now we're going to be looking at that miracle later on. But I want to draw your attention to two things. We'll see this in much more depth in a few weeks. But first of all, when Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick. Lazarus, his close friend, Lazarus that he loved. When Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick, did he rush right away to Lazarus's side? No. He waited for four days until Lazarus was dead. And not just dead, but good and dead. That Lazarus even... The scripture declares Lazarus would have stunk by this time. So why did Jesus do that? If Jesus really loved Lazarus 
that much? Why did he not rush to Lazarus' side or, or do even as he had done with the, the official son? Why didn't he just say, Lazarus, be healed? He didn't have to go anywhere. He did it because he had something far more important to do, something far more important to declare. Jesus was showing that he is God. Jesus was showing that he has authority over life and over death. How did the Pharisees respond to that? The Pharisees tried to, they wanted to kill Jesus after raising Lazarus from the dead, and they even wanted to kill Lazarus in order to try and destroy the evidence. How wicked can you get? Jesus could raise anyone that he wanted to from the dead. Anyone he wanted to. But in verse 22, he went even further. He said, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And he says similarly in verse 27, that the father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, he's not just talking about temporal judgment here. He's talking about final judgment, the judgment that sends people either to heaven or to hell. Again, the Bible shows that this authority to judge belongs to God and to God alone. When Abraham is interceding for Sodom in Genesis 18.25, he says to the Lord, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Again and again, Scripture testifies that God is the righteous judge. God is the judge of all the earth. God has authority to judge, and Jesus has authority to judge. Therefore, Jesus is God. This is yet another direct claim from Jesus to be no less than deity. And if there's any doubt in your mind, look at verse 23. This is the central verse of the chapter, and is one of the most explicit statements about the deity of Christ in the whole Bible. Jesus says that this authority to judge is so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the one who sent him. We talked about this last week. There are those who, who say they believe in God, but do not honor Jesus as God. Some see Jesus as a created being, like the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. Some see Jesus as a prophet, like Muslims. Some see Jesus as a wise teacher, like many Buddhists. But they do not give Jesus the honor that he deserves, and they do not honor God. Those who do not honor God the Son do not honor God the Father. And to call Jesus anything less than who he really is is the ultimate dishonor. 
Jesus tells us how we're to honor him in verse 23, by hearing his word and believing the one who sent him. So in verse 24, so what does it mean to, to hear Jesus' word? It doesn't mean just to hear, but to listen and to obey. There's a parallel situation in our relationships with our parents. As I was a teenager, I heard plenty of what my parents said, but I rarely listened to them and I rarely obeyed them. And when, I, when, I, when the Holy Spirit began to convict me of my sin, I began to confess my sin to my parents, to confess my dishonor of them. And not just to confess it to God, but to confess it to them. And it got to the point where they said, Enough, John. We've heard enough. We forgive you. But you know, to this day, now of course I don't do this perfectly, but to this day I strive when I dishonor my parents to confess that to them and to ask their forgiveness. To honor someone means to listen to what they have to say and to obey them. And if that's true of honoring our parents, how much truer is it in the way they were to honor God? If you do not honor the Son, you're not honoring the one who sent him. If you're not believing in the Son, you're not believing in the one who sent him. John writes in 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of eternal life in the Son, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through him. Any other belief will leave you in hell. Jesus is the only way. Tim Challies just posted on Facebook this morning, the essence of worship is responding to God's revelation of himself. The essence of worship is responding to God's revelation of himself. The Son is the perfect revelation of the Father. We honor the Father by bowing before him in worship. We honor the Son by bowing before him in worship as well. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.14 that he bows his knees before the Father. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.9 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, where the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Beloved, Jesus is the word that will not return void, but will accomplish that which he has been ordained to accomplish. To Jesus every knee will bow. 
Those who do hear the Son's word and believe in the Father who sent him, to them a promise is given. The promise is that he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming to the world. But we who are in Christ need not fear. We have already passed from death into life. We talked about this from John 3, 15 and 16. Whoever believes in the Son already has eternal life. Likewise, the one who does not believe is already condemned. They don't have to wait for final judgment for the verdict. They're only waiting for their final sentencing. In verse 25, Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We who are in Christ will be resurrected to eternal life. The eternal Father has life and he has also given life to the eternal Son. Remember, we, we talked about the, the ontological trinity. That life is intrinsic to God's being. It's intrinsic to the being of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we also need to consider here the economic trinity, how the members of the trinity interact with one another. That life was granted by the Father doesn't mean that there was ever a time when the Son didn't have life. This was demonstrated clearly in the prologue in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 4, in Him was life. So this this business about about giving life, the Father giving life to the Son, is, is timeless. Somewhere, the, 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 the Son is referred to as Monogenes, the, the eternally begotten Son. A.T. Robinson explains that the verb tense here, this is, it's in the aorist tense, if, if you understand these, these things in the Greek, it's, it's timeless. It's timeless. In other words, the, the Father has been eternally giving life to the Son. And this relates also to the Son's authority to judge. Both are conferred upon the Son by the Father. Gerald Borchardt explains that the Son is always recognized as having been sent by the Father, gifted by the Father, obedient to the Father, and ultimately glorifying the Father. He is the emissary of the Father. And this has to be true for us. We talked about this last week as well, that we needed an advocate, one who could perfectly obey on our behalf. One who could take the punishment that we deserve. And this could only be God incarnate. Jesus returns to the topic of the coming judgment again in verses 28 and 29. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. At the final trumpet, 
all will be resurrected by the word of Jesus. So the authority over life and death is not just demonstrated in the widow's son or in Jairus' daughter or in Lazarus. Jesus is going to raise everybody from the dead. This is when the final sentencing will take place. Jesus describes this in Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. To the sheep He will say, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then He goes on to list the works of mercy that characterize their lives. How they revealed love to God and to others. To the goats, however, he will, he will say, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus then demonstrates how their loveless deeds characterized their lives and that the judgment will fit the crime. It will fit the crime perfectly. It will fit the crime eternally. Jesus says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. Jesus here is showing perfect oneness with the Father. In everything that he, he does, he is in unity with the Father. He does the same things as the Father. He has the same judgment as the Father. He has the same will as the Father. Again, from D.A. Carson, like everything else Jesus says and does in his judgment, he is completely dependent on the word and will of his Father. In other words, this verse is a reiteration of verses 19 and 20, specifically applied to Jesus' authority in judgment. Jesus has the authority to judge and has the authority to raise the dead. He is therefore worthy of our worship. He raised Lazarus, he raised the widow's son, he raised Jairus. But apart from being resurrected, what else do those three have in common? They all eventually died. All three of them. Their, their mortal life on this earth ended. So in Jesus, in, when Jesus raised him from the dead, he was doing something far more powerful than giving life to a corpse. As amazing as that is. And he tells us the reason for the resurrections in John 11, verses 25 and 26. In his response to Martha when she confronted him about waiting before coming to heal her brother Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying here that through him, one could receive not just physical resurrection, but spiritual resurrection, and that their physical resurrection pointed to spiritual resurrection. It's one thing to raise 
somebody physically but the de from the dead, but it's quite another thing to raise somebody spiritually from the dead. It's actually a far, far greater miracle. You, could, you would say that a mechanic who was able to rebuild the transmission of a 1983 Fiat 127 is pretty skilled. Now, whether a mechanic would actually want to fix a 1983 Fiat 127 is another issue. But what would you say about a mechanic that could take a rusted out Hulk? All that's left is a, is a rusty shell of a 1983 Fiat 127 and immediately fix that car so it's running smoothly. Now that's a mechanic. Beloved, Lazarus wasn't just broken, he was dead, four days dead. And fellow Christian, you weren't simply broken when Jesus fixed you either. You weren't simply physically dead, you were spiritually dead and justly deserving of total condemnation. Listen to the verdict that was leveled against you by the perfect judge in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you who are dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Fellow Christian, that was you. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were a willful rebel against a holy God. You were by nature a child of wrath. You were under God's righteous judgment. You deserve the death penalty, and not just the, the, the gas chamber or the electric chair or lethal injection. We all deserve eternal death, eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But thankfully, Paul continues in Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Beloved, by grace you have been saved. You and I were spiritually dead. Dead, hopeless. But God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. This miracle goes far beyond just giving somebody who is dead life. What would you say about the mechanic who could not only get that rusted out Fiat running properly, but could also turn that Fiat into a Ferrari? That is what God has done with us. That's just a tiny, pale comparison to what God has done for us. We have already passed from death into life. But our regeneration, our new birth in Christ, was just the beginning. Beloved, one day we are going to receive glorified bodies. Glorified bodies. Without any temptation to sin. 
with any, any, without any of the worldly distractions, without any of the aches and the pains, a glorified body. Fellow Christian, consider what Paul says of you in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This has already happened. We've already been raised with him. We have already been seated with him in the heavenly places. This is a done deal. So we have been raised with Christ to reign with Christ eternally. But there is also a coming resurrection for the damned. There is also a coming resurrection for those who do not bow the knee. They will in the sense that they will cower in terror before the coming king. But for them it is too late. And their resurrected body is also glorified in a sense. It's glorified in the sense that it, it can never be ultimately destroyed. It will be eternally destroyed as they face eternal punishment. And I pray that that would not hold true for any of you who are hearing my words this morning. I pray that by God's grace, we would all bow the knee before King Jesus, before he returns. Beloved, Jesus is God. Eventually, he's going to raise everyone from the dead, some to eternal life, others to eternal death. His judgment will be perfect. And because of that, he deserves our obedience. Because of that, he deserves our worship. Let's pray.